think would make software bad is a GPL license. <laughs> you should just leave that second in the intro. It's going to be beautiful. <laughs> Welcome to the Code Kitchen. Today we're talking about a topic that's close to both of our hearts. What makes software good? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be an exciting one. I think this is an important one for a lot of devs, although um, a, a lot of devs fall on the other side of this conversation, which is what makes code bad. And I think we're going to spend some time unpacking the differences there. It's going to be a cool one. I'm excited. From my recent experience in um, in in software about five minutes ago, I think what makes software bad is a GPL license. <laughs> this is probably something we do need to unpack as like an entire software discipline. <laughs> the amounts of garbage open source code. <laughs> NPM, I'm looking at you. <laughs> Uh, that raises the, the 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 point quite early. Actually, I think that good code doesn't necessarily equal good software, which is something yeah. that that's an uncomfortable truth. I think in our industry, because we've got this close association with good code resulting in good software. I mean, you yeah. can write code that's fairly clean and fairly neat and easy to read that does something completely useless and all wrong yeah <laughs> and the other side of that I, I think there's plenty of very large code bases out there where you've probably got developers reading it every day and screaming how awful the code is and yet that code is used by millions of people around the world it's achieving a purpose it's quite difficult to um, call a piece of software that sells well and is used well bad even if the code is bad so simon um i, I feel like we jumped way into the deep end on this uh i know yes. that you put this topic on the board uh, so so definitely I'm, I'm interested in to know what inspired that so i think it's been a long-running conversation that um i i look around the software um, world and um lots of software developers want uh, a lot about bad code, and I think it's especially a problem that you see in junior developers. Um, oh, this code is garbage, that code is rubbish. Well, what what do you actually like? What What's actually the goal here? If all you're doing is complaining about bad code, should we not be spending more time looking at what makes software good and worrying less about what makes code bad? Um, so I think it's been a, a thing sitting in the back of my mind for a long time. And I think it's important as software developers, we think about what we're actually trying to achieve. Because good code is not the end goal, even though it's a wonderful thing to have. What we're trying to achieve is solve a problem. Yeah, there's almost a... I, I feel that if you start focusing solely on code and, and the way it's written, you sort of get lost in, in the goal of the, of the final product. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to produce a product. Code is a method to that end. It is not necessarily the the primary product i do feel as a consultant though uh, i have a little bit more responsibility in that field yeah. where my product for the company that i represent is the code so that's a little bit of yeah. an odd one there but but essentially i do agree with you that if you if you're trying to build a product the ultimate goal should be the product. If you've got a solution and it works and it's performant and the user doesn't complain, but it looks like dirty code, is it really dirty code? Especially, I mean, I have a very like kind of loose thing around code, um, especially when it comes to functions. I really like breaking stuff up into functions. Yeah. And especially pure functions and testable pure functions, because you can write absolute rubbish in a pure testable function. Yeah. I don't care because it's tested. It's got the coverage. If I give it the inputs, it gives the correct outputs. Obviously you kind of want to stick to standards and things like that, you know, those basic neatness things and hopefully someone can read it. But if it's a really complicated problem that no one could solve and then someone like hacked it together at midnight and it works, I'm not going to throw that out of a pull request. 
I'm going to be like, you know what? It's fully tested. We know that it works every time we give it input. Why does it really like it's really not that important that what's internal to that function is is good. It's just that it's broken up into that function and it's in one place. It's compartmentalized. We could come back to it or we could not, but the product should take priority over whether or not the code inside that small function is neat or not. Yeah. I think a really nice example of this is the fast floating point hack in, I want to say the Quake engine. So that original code is quite famous and I have no idea what it does. Um, but it's a key piece of engineering in, in that code that allows effectively rendering to happen fast. And one of the comments is just, what the hell? Or something to that effect, because it's this bizarre um, bit shift or something like that. The code looks insane, but it does its job really, really well. It's difficult yeah. to criticize that. Yeah, and, and especially, I, I think games are a very interesting uh, sort of example to bring up because a lot of what we in the software industry would consider really horrible code is, yeah. is the standard in game programming because they've got different priorities. So, for yeah. example, and, and especially it's, it's quite a, a contradiction to my style of programming, which is very functional. I'd rather replace an object than modify one. Yeah. Whereas in a game, you've got these very large objects in memory that you'd rather not completely tear down and put back up. You'd rather modify them. And obviously, yeah. with most engines being written in C++, you can do some pretty horrible things in memory. Um, <laughs> and probably again, should do horrible things to make the game run fast. Again, if you're working in the kind of spaces we work in or the space we worked in before, like financial technology, you don't want to be doing weird, horrible things in memory. You'd, we'd, we prioritize safety, whereas they're prioritizing speed. Mm. Uh, and if one pixel is out for one second on a game, nobody's losing millions of dollars. Yeah. That, is, that, is, that is a huge difference. And so that's, that's your software and your concept of quality code being driven by what your actual final product is but again we've gone into code but what makes software good is another question because as a, as i mentioned before you you know what what sort of software like good code doesn't equal good software so what what would you say makes software good? What is a good piece of software you've used? Or, or maybe what is a terrible piece of software? Or maybe we'll cover that a bit later. <laughs> so um, I have an opinion, and I'm just going to put it out there, and we're going to see what we think about it. So when I talk about what makes software good, I want software that fits its purpose well. Um, if software can do that, then I, I think I'm pretty happy with it. Um, and there might often be a lot of metrics around that. So I think probably a hugely important one is it solves the, the problem that the user wants to be solved. That could be a lot of things. Um, if you're playing games, it's fun. If you're um, working with enterprise software, it helps you fit a business case. But software that does not fit its purpose well, I want to say is not good software. And of course, there's some meta conversations around that as well. So if you're building enterprise mm -hmm. software, you may have a lot of junior developers working on many teams. Part of what makes that software fit for its purpose is that it can be mutated rapidly because that's often a business requirement. Mm. So one of the metrics that go into does the software fit its use case well in enterprise software may be that the code is easy to understand, depending on who works yeah. in your company. But it's only one of the metrics. Yeah, absolutely. I think personally, so I'm, I'm a very... I'm an angry software user, funny enough. And yeah, I, I get well. really I get really upset when when I try and do something and software doesn't work or it doesn't yeah. do what I expect it to do or it prevents me from doing my job. Especially yeah. software that prevents me from doing my job, that makes me infuriated. Yeah. Um but that's that I would say is on the enterprise level. But then there's sort of small things as well. 
um, when it comes to user experience and ease of use and stuff like that. Um, so GitLab, you you make this. Um, yeah, you, you make your pull request. The drop downs are drop downs. So I feel like they should have drop down functionality. They grayed out. You go to the new screen, you come back, and all your stuff is cleared. That is not a great user experience. Yeah. And it's designed that, I mean, you've got the first two fields. So you would have already filled it out because your eye is following it top to bottom because that's what you're used to. And and then you're on the, the third or fourth field, and then you realize, oh, I'm on the wrong branch. Let me just change it. Oh, no. Now I've lost all my changes. Yeah. That is absolutely terrible user experience and bad design, in my opinion. Um, and, and I think most people who are sane would agree. Yeah. Um, but And that's been there for forever. And in fact, it... I'm so sensitive when it comes to software like this, especially when there's so many other options. It's yeah. almost the deal breaker for me. Yeah. Because so, yeah, it tells me something about the attitude of the people writing the software as well, that they haven't fixed this. Yeah. They're not prioritizing the user's experience. And you can see that in GitLab throughout their, their ideas of just quickly changing and moving UI elements. You don't move UI elements quickly because what happens when you're working on a piece of software, when, when you use it for your job, you get trained. Your brain just Absolutely. sort of automatically moves the mouse to the right place and you do things and it becomes part of your routine. And then for you to suddenly move buttons or put them into other menus and things like that, GitLab did this a lot in the beginning. They haven't done it a lot recently i'll give them that but they also haven't fixed stupid bugs like that one yeah so i think ux is is a super important one potentially for a given piece of software um and it gets quite meta as well so ux is what pulls people back to your software if your ux is terrible and there are other options people will probably leave they might trickle out but they will eventually leave so software that frustrates its users to the point where no one uses it can you call that good software? I know that's only one of the trade-offs, but um, that's definitely an issue that we suffer for a lot. Yeah, I mean, and funny enough, that UX can make the whole task of what you're trying to do with that piece of software much easier to achieve, and you actually start achieving it more yeah. if the barrier to entry is lowered. So I think um, an example is Kaleidocode uses... Uh, toggle for time tracking. Yeah. And and like most of us, I've been pretty bad with toggle in the past. Haven't we all? But then toggle did a thing. Toggle created a a new interface that was more like a calendar. So you could create a section and you could just click and drag how big it was and how much time it spanned. I, I primarily use this interface now and my toggle is way more up to date. Usually it's up to date by the end of the week because yeah. I actually enjoy doing it. It's an enjoyable experience putting in my times in a timesheet. Who would have thought it makes a difference to me? Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's a particular me thing. Cause I'm a big fan of calendars as a view of time anyway. Um, and and I might, I'll actually expand on that, but the point is that that single decision that they made to change to to add an additional interface to this thing made my life so much easier in the way that I operate that I started doing a task that I was previously not good at keeping up to date with. Yeah. I find Toggle quite an interesting one in a lot of ways. Um, I'm going to get a, a little bit meta about this again. But at some point, I had a pop-up asking me about some feedback, and I, I dropped some feedback in there. And um, within two minutes, a human had reached out to me and said, hey, um, we got your feedback. Um, we've got wow. some suggestions around how you can work around the use case you're suggesting, and we'll take that on board for our developers for a future release. Um, wow. And software there is, is quite a meta system. So 
Uh, a piece of software doesn't exist in isolation. Software that never executes doesn't do anything. Um, so it's also the humans around it that keep it up, up to date and maintain it and interact with it. And if they can interact in meaningful ways with the software and they can share that with their users, um, you've already got a much more fledged out system that is functioning in a, in a healthy way. So I don't think it's just the software that, um, that stands alone when we talk about good software. It's also the things around it. I don't think we can forget those things. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think the broader concept of improving software or, or creating good software is essentially software as a product. Um, yeah. And if take what makes good software is what makes good products really. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it's good user experience, good feedback because you've got that sort of, I mean, every product has a marketing team or they're trying to build a brand for themselves and, and, you know, this, this kind of stuff applies to software. Um, but, but I have this feeling, um, about products and, and it's, it's very interesting because I, I think I confuse people with my my feelings around products because I can get the best thing in the world and I will criticize the living crap out of it. Yeah. And I love it. I love the product, but it's got some flaws. And if you fix those flaws, it would be even better. Um, and, and my favorite example of this is the... The laptop I've been using a Kaleido code for seven years, the 15-inch <laughs> the, the MacBook Pro uh, from 2013. And, and I would rant about this thing. And, and then Rory would be like, oh, do you want a replacement for that? I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm keeping it. It's, it's, I've... I've I've refused upgrades about because uh, I think we're supposed to upgrade like once every two years or something. So, you know, and, and it's still on this um, this MacBook Pro. Well, now it's gone in for battery replacement, and they can't find batteries and a whole bunch of other things because it's so freaking old. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, it's got I've got a lot of complaints about that laptop. It was still the best laptop I've used, and I certainly wouldn't want to be using one of those plastic things that that other people are using running that really bad software that crashes all the time yeah is it no might be i mean yeah dude so you can have software that's deeply flawed and it's still an amazing piece of software um and i'd like to take this opportunity to talk about one of my favorite pieces of software on earth which is skyrim <laughs> so if anyone out there plays skyrim and you use the wikis at all any page that you ever go to on any topic on Skyrim will have a list of known bugs, every single one. Yeah. And if you watch videos on YouTube about Skyrim, there are entire videos of people who have made videos just about interesting bugs. Every Skyrim playthrough has at least one critical bug. But that game is so ridiculously successful, they've put it on every single platform up to including your toaster. Um, it's an amazing piece of software. But it's not interesting. Linux. It's engaging. But oh, I don't know that. Yeah, there you go. Um, it's interesting. It's engaging. The playthrough is is massive. It made Bethesda a huge amount of money, um, but it's still yeah. full of bugs. It's a great piece of software that is bug ridden. I think that's that's an amazing thing that we as developers need to acknowledge that you can have buggy software that actually is still good software. I mean, ideally, you don't want the bugs. Yeah, with, with with Skyrim, it's questionable though, because maybe you do want the bugs because they're humorous. okay. There are some great bugs. There are definitely some great um, bugs in Skyrim. But I mean, that's an interesting point because, as I said, um, the the MacBook Pro had to go in for uh, for battery stuff, and what I did is took my desktop machine, ran, created an encrypted drive, threw Linux on it, and and functioned that way for the past few months. So I've been running Pop! OS uh, from System76, which is the most stable Linux I've ever run on this desktop machine because this desktop machine yeah, has great. been quite angry around uh, Linux and Unix-based operating system. In fact, I got Mac OS running on this thing easier than Linux at one point. It was like, what the 
freaking heck. That is too bizarre. <laughs> it was. <laughs> I don't even know what's going on here, but uh, you know, I and and that was a really buggy environment. My Windows boot drive is much more stable, but given that I was working on a React project that was using, you know, Node tools and things like that, those feel really slow still on Windows. So this is the same yeah. machine too. So it's dual boot. I, I tried starting it out on Windows, but something felt really sticky around those tools. It just felt just a few uncanny valley milliseconds off and it just uh, and and i had these weird conflicts with line endings and things i was just like you know what i, I need a unix system let me go to linux and and i got punished for it um in in the sense that you know you've got these weird things with pulse audio and sound and like the usb thing not picking up and a whole bunch of just uh yeah and and especially for us Microsoft Teams is, is the thing that we use and it it just feels like two years ahead on on Windows. Even the interface looks a little bit different on Windows yeah. than it does on Linux. I think in Linux is still a preview. So yeah. there was definitely a sacrifice there. And and I made a lot of sacrifices using Linux, but for the work I was doing and and for the part that I was I was happy with those other uncomfortable bits because the the other part of the work felt smoother on yeah. um, on Linux than it did on Windows. Even though I mean, uh, one of the things I noticed, especially since I've I've booted Windows for this podcast now, but I haven't used it in probably a month, and coming back to it when you drag a window when you move the mouse it, it just looks smoother yeah. which is a, which is crazy it's like there's, there's something going on that feels smoother and it's weird because when a mouse moves smoothly you almost feel like it's moving more smoothly across the mouse pad it's like a yeah. it's like a an illusion that your brain sort of just things feel easier and quicker yeah. when i'm moving things Unless it was an NPM package, then it, then it would be different. <laughs> NTFS seems to kind of suffer under a lot of um, a lot of files, but but the point there is that I went to a system that I feel is more buggy and inferior in a lot of ways, um, and I even bashed it twice already in the podcast. But <laughs> but I every time I tr tried to redo it on Windows, it was like no no I have to go back, and yeah. so. There's a perfect example of a, a buggy software that I preferred because it covered my specific use case. And I think this yeah. is also something to remember because if you are if you're the person who's writing the software, it's like what user do you have in mind? Um, and maybe that software mm. is a little bit more generic. Um, but to a particular user, they want a particular use case. Yeah, I think that's super important. So you, you need to know who your audience is. Um, one of my favorite pieces of software, I think, is Git. I think it's an incredibly elegant piece of software. But Git definitely has problems. Its interface is, is hot garbage. Um, Git is a Git. Git is a Git. And I think that causes a lot of problems with people, especially coming into Git, if they don't have a lot of Git skills. Um, you can cause a lot of trouble. I still think Git is an amazing and powerful tool, but sometimes it doesn't fit the use case of being an easy source control system. So given that we, I mean, we've talked about bugs and, and essentially that bugs don't necessarily make software bad. Yeah. Maybe maybe it's the type of bugs though maybe crashing i think crashing is a really horrible thing that, that yeah. happens um yeah although i'd rather a crash than a freeze because a freeze then crash just wastes more of your time or um do something wrong with your data yeah i don't i don't want it to corrupt data i i really don't want it to prevent work so one of the one of the interesting things was um i've been 
getting into trouble on Twitter. <laughs> As one does. <laughs> so what happens is, 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 yeah, they pick some guy with a certain use case and, and or they do some weird, the, the one that really drives me insane, it's like they compile Firefox. Like this is a metric that that um, Scrap. that that tech reviewers are using to determine whether or not it's a good dev machine, because compiling Firefox as a as an as a JavaScript developer is something that I do on a regular basis. Yeah, just just oh, I just don't compile Firefox like C plus yeah, plus I mean, compilation. Um, on projects that size takes fairly long on even a beefy machine, but it's something that is not part of my daily yeah. use case as a web developer. Yeah. <laughs> I develop for Firefox. I don't develop Firefox. Yeah. It's a very small set yeah. and it's shrinking because Mozilla keeps firing people. <laughs> it's important to understand that when we say developer, we're actually talking about a, about a very large and disparate group of human beings. The needs of a C developer are not the needs of a of a JS developer. Absolutely, and and I've been managing with a, a laptop with eight gigs of RAM for the past seven years, because I'm also a very like conservative user of RAM. I, I just naturally yeah. want to close tabs and and keep things under wraps. And even when I do go exceed RAM, like when I open Teams, um. <laughs> you know things are fine in fact in fact i think in my workload probably the application that uses the most memory in cpu is microsoft teams because it has to do that yeah. video compression thing and that destroys the machine i've gotten by for for seven years of this thing and and now in in 2020, it became a problem because we had to start using video calls and teams and things like that. And, and that's when that's when eight gigs of RAM wasn't enough anymore. Because running VS Code and a few terminals that are running things and a browser with a debugger open, that's easy. It's 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 really easy for even a, a tiny computer to do. But having a video call, uh, something that your phone could do, funny enough, but not something <laughs> not something that um your i7 laptop can do yeah yeah it's a bizarre place to be i don't i mean we weren't really ready for the pandemic of software developers so we had all this existing software that probably didn't port across particularly nicely to a whole rising cases of um new new use cases in the industry uh it's again it's hard to criticize teams because of its its massive market share but that's not going to stop me from criticizing it um I don't know whether I would call Teams a good piece of software or not. It, I often find that Teams prevents me from getting work done. But it also does let me get a lot of work done. So I, I suppose. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it prevents me from getting work done. I'm, I'm not sure if that should be the only metric. Um, it's definitely a big one for me personally. Um, mm. But and but for me personally as well, especially from for consumer grade software. Um, and and even for work software really is is that user experience, especially when software is very similar to a competing piece of software. Um, mm. I mean, I am a big fan of the calendar app on a Mac. Um, and there's obviously a calendar app on Windows, there's, there's calendar apps on, on Linux. I actually find the, the one on Windows to be probably the worst, uh, the built-in one. I don't mind the calendar on Teams. Um, basically, I like to be able to right-click in a space on the calendar and just create an event. And and this has varying degrees of difficulty depending on the platform. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is quite funny. But I have I have stuck with iCloud calendars, even though not all of my machines are Macs or or. Apple products, although it seems to be heading in that direction. Um, but I just like I like using that software more, and and because my personal yeah. calendar is is something that you know is is very tightly tied to personal choice. I'm 
going to gravitate towards the thing I actually enjoy using because I'm also trying to encourage myself to use this system. So if it's if it's a pleasant experience to use a piece of software, I'm going to go all in on that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's an important one, especially around um, user-focused software. Um, of course, not all software is user-focused. So I have a, a favorite little story that I love to tell um, about a comment that I read many years ago on the internet. And I can't vouch for its veracity, but I think it's a lovely story nevertheless. So we talk about, we've talked a lot about memory usage um, in this conversation and how poor user experience can, can be taken by um, uh, aggressively consuming memory. But not all software has user interfaces. So a lot of code um, that runs military hardware is not going to have a user interface. No one's going to sit there with a user um, interface and guide a missile. I mean, okay, maybe there are some missile systems work that work like that. But the, the story is related to um, a consultant that got pulled in to review some uh, missile controller code. And he did an assessment and um, went back to the lead developers and says, guys, the software leaks memory all over this place. You assign memory and you never clean it up. And the lead developer of the software says, of course it leaks software. I mean, of course it leaks memory. Why wouldn't it leak memory? So the entire approach during the design of the software was work out the massive, I mean, the maximum amount of assignable memory during the missile's runtime, buy a RAM chip that has three times that amount of, of memory, and then never clean up memory ever. Because when the missile hits its target, you get the ultimate garbage collect. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so places where historically and other pieces of software, I think can be really, really bad. For example, memory leaks. In this case, was not bad at all. Yeah. Our missile controller code hits its purpose really, really nicely, and hopefully its target. Yeah. Um, so sometimes things that are really, really egregious in one family of software are actually a positive elsewhere. It's an interesting thing to keep in mind when you design software. You need to understand what you're building for. I would say that is a particularly interesting and an almost edge use case because I, I'm just trying to think of the other yeah. the places um, where memory is mostly still a problem. Um, I mean, mm. if you had to do that in the cloud, you'd get one hell of a fun bull at the end of the, mm. at the end of the month. Um, if you had to do that now, especially on phones and, and now laptops being pretty much always on, uh, <laughs> if you think you'd suffer there. <laughs> and I also remember a story about, um, some, some developer at Apple saying that there were, they had an, a once off memory leak. So it, it happened when you started the application and never again. Uh, and it was leaking yeah. 32 bytes and they, they sat there for two weeks trying to figure out how to fix this 32 byte memory leak. And was it worth it to fix that 32 byte memory leak? I think it stacks up. Uh, uh, yeah. On this, this software. yeah, definitely. I mean, they're, they're still selling eight gigabyte laptops, uh, Apple. And, yeah. and like I said, yeah. my personal experience is that that hasn't been an issue until Microsoft Teams. <laughs> Yeah, but then again, yeah. I mean, look, that's an important thing. That's looking after your software. That's that's making sure that these small things don't stack up to become to go from very very minor problems to become massive problems. Because a hundred memory leaks of of very small chunks can definitely start to stack up. Yeah. Um. But but yeah, it's it's definitely build software for its purpose, and if it meets its purpose, we're good. And, and and make sure that purpose doesn't get in the way of the user achieving their purpose. So, for example, yeah. you know, Linux for development plus a little bit of Teams. You know what? Yeah. I can I can live with the I can live with the the silliness, and and, and yeah. that goes into that. But uh, it's it's really difficult to, especially when you're trying to debug something. You want that speed there. So I understand. I understand why people would would want a faster machine for that, um, and definitely. I mean, my use case in Dev is also you know with low memory requirements and things like that. That's probably also very fairly niche, because um, yeah. a lot of people write 
inefficient software because especially in the web dev world we've seen really inefficient servers or servers that load up a whole bunch of stuff into memory just when they start up um, but it turns out I, I almost think that's a good thing to have a low powered laptop in that sense because you okay. learn very quickly because it ruins your experience as a developer until you go and fix that and guess what when you go fix that your bills are going to go down for the cost that, that it takes to run your um your stack and your users will probably be happier yeah that's frustrating to use slow software um uh, it's a pet peeve when a developer builds something on a quantum computer and they give it to me and it's like no guys promise it runs fast it runs smooth on on what on on a cluster yeah this thing's run on my desktop like I understand that you your developer productivity relies on having good machines, but if you had terrible machines, I wouldn't be dealing with really, really slow software right now. Yeah, and I, the way I see it, I mean, I've run I've run multiple microservices on a MacBook Air on using Docker. Like I've seen that, and, yeah. and there were Java services. So people have this whole thing about Java. Yeah. Oh, it's a big yeah. Well, you can run that on MacBook Air, and when you're doing Dev. You're usually doing when you're going through the software or, or the UI part. You're using a, a single user, mm. and it's like, well, if a single user requires more than 16 gigs of RAM to function, obviously you've got your developer tools and things like that. But go look at the clouds and the pricing. It's like yeah. I, a single user. I think even a fairly large stack should be designed in such a way that it runs um, smoothly on, on very low hardware because obviously as you add more users, it's going to scale up and, and you just imagine the requirements of the server you'd be running on. However, yeah. I do realize that there are practical aspects and sometimes um, sometimes we have old software that, that is legacy and got to a particular point where it needs all of that hardware just to function properly. But yeah. I think if you're at that stage, yeah, cool. Buy the really expensive machine to run it. But make that your primary goal to be able to not have to have that. Yeah. Because that is some serious software rot, um, in my opinion. And and people just keep throwing hardware at these problems. Um, I've, you've seen it a lot, especially especially with very database-heavy software, which is always a red flag for me, um, mm. where, where stuff is just, you know, people just throw more cores and hardware at the problem. And I don't feel like that's a great, that's a, a patchwork problem. I mean, I think it may be so... Sometimes it's okay to write inefficient software really quickly um, and get it out because that allows you to capture market share. So it might be okay, but you need to understand the trade-off that you're making there. You really, really do. Because software can become a victim of its own success. I think software that starts off with good intentions and someone maybe writes some bad code or produces a silly feature and it's just one cut. And that's fine. You get some market share. And then you do the next one, and that's also inefficient. And someone else releases a bad, a bad feature. Now you've got two cuts to your software. Um, you can start off with a piece of software that fits uh, a few use cases incredibly well, build up a massive market share, and then end up with software that you can't change, is too slow, is too inefficient. And now you have 300 million people using it around the world, and they all hate it. And they're all trying to get off of it. Um, so absolutely, I, I think you can definitely become a, a victim of this this attitude of we'll fix it later or it doesn't need to be fixed, um, both in terms of features and in terms of performance. I think uh, Jira is probably a nice case of software that's been a victim of its own success. It's got so complicated that I don't necessarily know how to navigate it these days. And I'm a huge fan when I go to a client and they're not using Jira. <laughs> um, it's a terrible thing to say, but I think it would be echoed by a lot of peers. But Jira is, is arguably a very successful piece of software. And I think the way they probably got there is by caving into a million requests, um, trying to hit a really nice cadence, and then implementing things in such a way that you ended up with incredibly complicated software that doesn't quite fit and solves everyone's use cases in an okay way, 
no one's use cases really well. And now we're at a point where, I mean, Jira memes are a, a thing on the internet. Developers often rebel against it. I, I think, so, so I think the interesting uh, piece is, what do project managers think of Jira? Oh, yeah, I think they love it. So, so here's the thing. Um, Jira has the same interface for people with different jobs. Yeah. There are actually ways to, to kind of change this. Actually, funny enough, there you can have different views on boards and things like that. I saw, I saw some of it mm. at one of our clients, but it, it took the project manager a real long time to figure all that stuff out. And, and it wasn't very obvious, but, but I think part of the issue is, um, you've got different user profiles essentially in Jira, but they all see the same thing when they log in. Yeah. So, I mean, think about like the, the real question is, I, I think a lot of devs love Trello or that sort of Trello style, um, very simple, just stuff on the card. Mm. And, and, and Jira does have that. One of the things is Jira is slow. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Which I think I think software devs sort of get angry at slowness slowness faster than most users. Um, yeah, because we spend a lot of time yeah. on software, so we know it's very rapid. Yeah, we notice it, and we also know that we wouldn't want to create that sort of software that is slow like that, and we'd want to fix it if if that was our jobs. And and we do yeah. know it's possible um, in in certain applications, and so when we see that slowness, we get frustrated. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, I would say I, I'm tentative about the new Jira cause, cause there are newer versions of Jira. Um, but unfortunately in the enterprise, people run their own versions that are sometimes a little bit, uh, a few versions, Not so long. a few versions down. Really? Jira is moving full to cloud. Oh boy. That's interesting. Mm. Uh, cause mm. I did purchase Trello. Interesting enough. Atlassian did purchase Trello. Um, yes, and I've noticed by the, the rashing I get every single time I log into uh, Trello and says, please log into Atlassian as well. Leave me alone. I don't want to log into Atlassian. <laughs> but, but the thing is, I like the Trello interface, but there's a whole bunch of mm. stuff that's very useful to a project manager inside Jira mm. that I couldn't give a flying toss mm. about. And so mm. maybe we should see Trello and they should see Jira. And everybody will be happy. So, <laughs> essentially, I my my assessment of that whole situation is that they tr they tried to please everyone, and they didn't really make yes. and 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 they made trade offs in doing that. Um, and at the end of the day, the companies buying Jira and paying for Jira. Uh, and the people that make that decision are not the developers. The people that make Absolutely. that decision are the people that read those metrics. And, and so they're getting a beautiful experience out of the thing. And, and they're targeting that market. And the devs have sort of been traded off because they're not making the decisions around whether or not the software should be used. It's a management perspective. Yeah. And from a management perspective, it's a perfect piece of software. But there's an interesting second conversation there. So um, as we've raised the use case for uh, project managers and bosses or whoever it may be in Jira, um, and we've lessened the experience for software developers, you get into this strange place where your team is constantly being rashed by project managers. Please, guys, just update the board. For the love of heavens, update the board. Mm. So we've created this little schism um, within the two primary use cases uh, of Jira. And for the people that we're trying to satisfy, the project managers, the developers need to use it effectively. Yes. So the sacrifice in terms of making it better for project managers has made it worse for software developers, which paradoxically is now making it worse for project managers. Absolutely, 100%. Because I again, it goes back to my experience with Toggle. When they made that interface better for me, I started updating that more. It's because yeah. Jira is has become more effort than it's worth for the developer and so yeah 
but some of it I put on developers, to be honest. Um, I, I think developers are more sort of the creative type of person. And if yeah. you're a creative type, you tend to be a little bit um, bad at the conscientious kind of stuff, like crossing your T's and dotting your I's and, and doing that also because you get distracted by the problem or whatever. And you're in this space and you're mm. in this zone. And, and so you really have to do a lot for that kind of user in order to to help them down that path. And, and sometimes it's, it's purely the developer, but mm. and maybe it's the workflow as well. But I, I feel like if if the developer felt it was useful to them, they'd be using it. Um, yeah, especially since the whole concept of swim lanes is that it makes you feel like you're creating pro like you're doing progress. And if you feel like yeah. your work being done is the card being moved into the done lane, then you're going to prioritize that. But the, that's not the case with yeah. a lot of devs. And I'm not sure. And I think it's a fairly blurry line is, is it the fault of devs in the way that they view the world um, and, and the way that they view a task as done? Or yeah. is it the software or most likely it's a bit of both? And your the nature of your team as well. So teams build their own little um, communities and the way they relate to their work is also part of part of the way that team comes together. Yeah. Um, the, the process that they set up, the flows that they use, what it means for a thing to be done. Um, each team is different around this. And it can also be part of the team's fault that this is not getting done well. But I, I think Jerry also has some some answering to do <laughs> around uh, why this is such a complicated process. Uh, yeah, but I, I think that's also a case of over time you just keep adding features, or mm. uh, and, and eventually it gets to this point where. You, it wasn't the original design and and this is where maybe the the software architecture coming comes back into it and the code cleanliness comes back into it because i mean you can see stuff with jira again they've actually the newer versions feel a lot smoother and a lot cleaner of, of atlassian products um so it looks like they've done a lot of okay. cleanup in my opinion um but things felt really slow in some instances you'd click something and you'd wait for for quite a while for it to load and yeah you could see the bulk there and and that's also frustrating i mean taking a minute to load something adds hours at the at the end of a week you know <laughs> like, yeah yeah it really does huh? and you end up with this um, passive aggressive jokes from developers that they're um, developing in jira yeah which is really just a sign of huge unhappiness on their part because 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 what i'd like is is i'd like my information to be on the card in order to perform the task and and when it's complete i want to move it to done that that's how i see it but so that should be a very quick experience um and i shouldn't have to spend too much time there so if yeah if i am spending much time there because of the performance of the application um that is now effectively getting in the way of my work and so it yeah. comes back to that that whole thing uh as as work software i i really don't want things to get in the way of my work um yeah absolutely with random crashes in skyrim or the giant hitting you far into the air that's not going to prevent work from being done it's, it's gonna maybe i don't know it, it might even entertain encourage you. you to do it. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Look, I mean, to credit um, Skyrim's credit, they've they've also got. Um, I want to say an elegant workaround, but I don't know if it actually is. The saving system in Skyrim is really good. Um, when your game crashes, when something goes wrong, you always have a save to backtrack. When um, something crashes, you've got a quick save right there. It's easy to recover from those problems. Yeah. Perhaps they should fix the crash bugs. But um, I've been playing Skyrim for nearly half a decade, and uh, you know I'm still playing Skyrim. Yeah, I'm gonna go play Skyrim after this podcast. So the thing is, even though it is a problem, it's workaround. Yeah, the thing is, no one loses money if the 
don't like play Skyrim within the next five minutes or something like. That. Yeah, it's a little bit yeah. of a different, a different ball game. Um, Absolutely, it comes in many shapes and forms. Do you think, though, as users, because I think we're speaking from both the developer side and a user perspective when when we're talking about this. Mm. Do you think as users, we sometimes, um, maybe we're using it wrong in the sense that maybe someone has designed software for a particular use case and we're actually using it for a slightly different use case and maybe we aren't the target audience and then we go and get upset. That's probably entirely fair. Um, there, there are places where you're using PSN software wrong and you should just stop doing that. Please, for the love of God, put it down. Um, but I don't think that's the average use case. I think the the average uh, incidence of this is when a developer, project manager, team, whatever, has built it, and their intent or how it needs to be used is subtly different from the way people actually require. I think that's where you start to get that cognitive dissonance where it doesn't quite fit for what you're trying to do. There are definitely cases where people are just using software wrong, um, but I don't think it's all of the time. Yeah, but so it comes back to this whole thing, though, where, um, you know, software is a bit of an art form. Um, and it's just and it's this weird thing of, you know, what is a software developer? Are they an author, a user or an engineer? Um, I think you're all of those things. And I think it's important to um, try to be all of those things on a regular basis. So. When you're, when you're a software author and you're using software, try to keep in mind that other people are building software to the best of their abilities on tight timelines. Yeah. And remember that you also make mistakes. This yeah. is good for the developers of the software because they don't get angry bug reports. This is also good for us because we can uh, remember to forgive people a little bit for mistakes that they've made and lower our own frustrations. When you are um, an author of software and you're using software on a regular basis, look at the software that you use and note the things that frustrate you and try to not do those in your software insofar as it's possible. It may not always be. And the engineer aspect of that is trying to balance all these things. So the software is always a family of trade-offs. Um, and one of those trade-offs is always time. Um, just make sure that you are making the correct trade-offs for the use cases. That's the best that you can do. I mean, I would say that, interestingly enough, as a user, Probably because you were talking about, you know, realize that people are building stuff on a deadline and times are with timelines and things like that. I, I think that the things that probably induce rage in me the most, though, are when I see a bug that is something I actually know what the cause of is, and I know I would never let that through. I would never release that. Mm. Um, mm. And, and it's so obvious and so blaring, and you're just like, Come on, dude. What do yeah. it? Uh, yeah. Why did why did you do that? Yeah, I mean that's hugely frustrating. I think the only positive experience you can take away from that is to remember to double check that kind of thing when you build it, and don't do that to your own users. Please, don't be that guy. It's like, why did your update now brick the AMD system, Microsoft? <laughs> That is not yeah. great. Yeah. Uh. I mean, look, it, it also happens. I mean, I think every single developer has released one thing to production and gone, oh, no, oh, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've seen some terrible things. I don't think I've, I've done quite as terrible things as I've seen out in the real world. But maybe that's because well, it depends, and I think the funny thing is that sometimes people obsess over something that's fairly trivial. It's like, um, you know, maybe it's um, a piece of software that doesn't really like. I don't know. Maybe it categorizes movies or something. You know, it's it's not really mm. a, a a vitally important thing, and and for them having some sort of math error. You know, not a big deal. Mm. Um, if you're Apollo team, however, yeah, you want to get your maths right. So, so, so sometimes you you should prioritize these 
things a little bit more. Um, but then you think about that and you're like, well, why can't we all be a little bit more careful? Um, and and it's, it's mainly these these crazy deadlines. And but then you've got to ask yourself, mm. is the deadline more important than the piece of software? Um, and I think you're right to say it like that. You need to ask yourself because the answer might be yes. The answer might be no. It's very difficult. To yeah, say. you need to. I, I think in the enterprise. Uh, I think in enterprise. And and for the the kind of software that we're used to having, which is the um, you know line of business software, deadlines are important because yeah. they're related to some sort of marketing thing like that, etc., etc., etc. Sort of. Yeah, deadlines take many shapes. So you can absolutely have a deadline because your project manager has promised something to the boss without understanding it, um, and it was unrealistic. That is not an important deadline. Might be important for the project manager, yeah. but they made their own bed. There's another kind of deadline when it's like there's a contract writing on this, and that contract will net the company ten million dollars. Yeah, that is an important deadline. But that's 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 pretty like because because someone's going to need that piece of software to do their job. Yeah, and they need to start their job on that certain date. That I get. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If the calendar app on Windows isn't updated within the next six months, I'm not going to uninstall Windows. Yeah. Nobody's contract is riding on that. And we'd rather it, it come late than it completely mess up my appointments, you know? Absolutely. Um, I think No Man's Sky is a perfect example of that. So potentially they should have released that software a little bit later after it was more polished. Mm. And they came to, um, I'm going to say an uncomfortable thing, but I do think it's true, a relatively toxic community of gamers. Um, and they paid the price for that. Um, they eventually got their software to the point where the reports I'm hearing from people who do play it say it's wonderful. It's an amazing game. Well, uh, if a game releases late, who's losing money over well i guess the studio probably wanted to move on to onto other stuff but i'm just you know it seems like a trivial thing to me maybe i don't understand it maybe maybe there's an element here that i just don't get but really in the grand scheme of things delaying it a little bit eh. I think that should be the case, hey, dude. So, again, the gaming community is, is a ball of garbage. Yeah. Um, and you lose goodwill with the gamers when you release software late. You also lose goodwill when you release buggy stuff. Obviously, that is, that is a slider. Here's the thing. Um, you can't have things really fast that are bug-free. It's just the reality. So your job as an engineer in that situation is to find the right balance to keep your community paying you money. Here's the thing, though. Right. And, and that's the real the real interesting thing the game sells for a particular price right now if you sell it early or you sell it a month later the price is still the same yeah the um, amount yeah and then the amount of people that purchase it is probably still going to be the same yeah, fairly similar, unless you lost the marketing wave. In fact, yeah. But it actually would pay. Like, like you can you can say, yeah, there's a whole bunch of backlash and people got angry. Did they ask for their money back? Yeah, I think that's a minority there. People asking for their money back. And I think people will still come back to those games and play them later. Yeah. So my point is, from a business, purely business capitalist perspective what's the harm in releasing a buggy game a month before and then patching it a month later it's probably fairly minimal so you see this is where the interest of the users versus the interest of the developer is sort of not aligned yeah because and again that's a trade-off that you have to make because that is the reality of making games your interests are not going to be aligned someone shouting at you on twitter doesn't hurt your bottom line. 
Mm. And someone's always going to shout at you on Twitter anyway. Mm. You could you could save everyone from cancer that has cancer and someone will still hate you for it somehow. Mm. So <laughs> yeah, I mean I think that it's important to manage your community and I think that holds mm. true for all software. But but I think and and EA have learned this it probably doesn't matter if the entire community hates you or not. They're still going to play your damn game. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. He uh, is a beautiful example of that. They're just like, oh, whatever. Yeah, yeah, really. Complain. Yeah. You're still going to buy it. Because <laughs> we've got all so, the licensing um, rights to all the sports games ever. I think there is a threshold there. So there's definitely be some, I mean, EA has had backlash since early days, I think. But um, the gamers have managed to pipe this into political movements as well. So EA has taken some backlash of microtransactions. Mm. And I suspect uh, new laws forbidding microtransactions probably have hit their bottom line. Yeah. So you can't ignore your users completely. Yeah, as, I mean... As, you probably can and do it a lot. Well, that's... I, I don't know if the microtransaction thing is more of a, a legal thing. Like personally for me as someone who's worked in the strictly strictly regulated gambling industry to, oh. to see what they get away with, which under gambling law yeah. would be completely. Oof. If, yeah. if gambling law starts applying to EA. Holy cow, yeah. I, I would not want to be one of their server-side developers on that day because yeah. there's yeah. so much, if, if you're in that, in the gaming, the other gaming industry, um, which is gambling, there is so much legacy software that is built up over years and years around all of these regulations around gambling. For that to suddenly be classified as gambling would hurt so much. Yeah. But the question there is, um, how long could they have gotten away with that? Because I presume the microtransactions transactions made them a lot of money. If they hadn't alienated their community, I suspect they could have flown under the radar for much longer and made more money before the political folks got wind of it. Uh... I think in this case, not caring about your users probably brought that to a head a little bit sooner. I don't, I don't know, actually. I... So I, I think we're probably wandering off um, track a little bit at this point. Um, uh, yeah. Do you have any closing thoughts for the audience? Um, yeah. Make um, Skyrim mods to circumvent the law. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. We we definitely digressed off the topic there, but um, yeah, I. My closing thought is it's it's all about trade-offs and and focusing on on mm. what your user wants. That's what makes good software and and meeting mm. the user's requirements, but also all interested parties' requirements. As you mentioned, in mm. some aspects, being able to change or rapidly change quickly. So so look at your entire user base, and your user base could be, um, I mean, especially if you're in a large company you could be in charge of a certain set of microservices or services that other developers in your company consume and yeah. think about how you can um, create the best user experience for them. Think of all your stakeholders and create great user experiences for each one of them. Prioritize all of your stakeholders but maybe, maybe you have some stakeholders that are more important than others. So maybe make up a priority mm. list and actually say, well, and, and have that list available. So when you have to make a decision on where should we make a trade-off, look at how high they are on priority list and go, hmm, you know, maybe we should, you know, prioritize these people more than these people. But also bear in mind that whole Jira example where not prioritizing the developers for a very long time seem to seem to cause an issue for both users. Just think about stuff. Yeah. Really. Think about it from the user's perspective, not from your perspective, and certainly not from which line the opening brace in your software should be. Yeah. 
Yeah, please, can we stop that? Yeah, I did. I think you've said everything that I wanted to say. Um, building software is about trade-offs. Consider what trade-offs you're making. Think about um, the current, think about the future. Make sure that you're making appropriate trade-offs. And with a little bit of luck, you should end up with some good quality software. Yes. And on that bombshell, we have to go into the kitchen and talk about <laughs> what kind of food has been cooking in your kitchen. So I've been uh, chatting to one of my Bulgarian friends, um, and I've always found he, he cooks new and interesting things, prepares things that I've, I've never considered. And uh, I've pulled out a recipe that I learned from him a while ago, um, which is just a very basic tzatziki. Um, absolutely delicious, so super simple to make. You chop up a third of a cucumber, um, slap some yogurt in a bowl, tablespoon of olive oil, a teaspoon of garlic. Uh, I'm missing something important here. It's okay, you guys will figure it out. A little bit of salt, and if you're feeling like splashing out, chopped up mint or chopped up dill. It's really nutritious, it's really satisfying, it's such an easy meal to make. So again, with my conversation on developer food, I've been living on that for the last week. It's amazing. Well, what's cooking in your kitchen? Yeah, on my side, um, I, I, I don't think there's been much exciting other than the stir fries that I'm still going at. Um, but this coming Sunday, so tomorrow, um, I am going to experiment with duck. So we're going to be seeing, we're going to roast a duck and see how well that turns out and then i'll report back to you next week about the methods i used and whether or not they're good <laughs> i'm very excited it's going to be great looking forward to hearing about that journey yes definitely um un unfortunately i i was unable to use the local goose supply um so <laughs> to go buy it from someone else <laughs> it, it's it's so, very so folks who are listening to this this man has uh geese that have invaded his his garden <laughs> yes uh but but the family's not not keen on me eating them um which is disappointing. Very, disappointing. It's very disappointing so so we're not allowed to eat those geese so we've got to go get someone else's goose and eat that or or duck uh, and or yeah, duck, duck. so okay. so here we have these things called egyptian geese they are on a spectrum between geese and ducks um they stand like geese they quack like ducks and they can crossbreed with ducks they're pretty much ducks i think the person who named them a goose was kind of a troll um and may have named greenland and iceland so if it walks like a goose and it quacks like a duck <laughs> If it walks like a duck and cracks like a duck, it's probably a goose. Yeah, it was named by a JavaScript developer, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm looking forward to hearing about your journey. Yes, thank you very much. And on that bombshell, we are going to end, and I will go look up goose on NPM and see if it's actually a duck. <laughs> Have a great one, folks. Enjoy your week.